Let's go. Master of all things tabletop. With the Paladins of Podcast. They ruin the games you love by talking rules that suck, how to build kick-ass encounters, destroy worlds, and really get your players invested. So go ahead and throw that fistful of dice at someone. Because we're going on a side quest. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Side Quest with the Paladin of Podcasts, Rob and Eli. And today, still in our hunt for new hosts, we have today Lauren with us. How are you doing, Lauren? How are you guys doing? Very Great. well. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, uh, it's kind of a great habit for us to ask you to introduce yourselves. So I'm going to give you the floor. Let us know a little bit about your history, the tabletop hobby, uh, some of your favorite systems, least favorite systems, etc. Um, kind of go ham. Let us know who you are. Yeah, um, thanks. Uh, so I'm Lauren. Um, I've been in kind of, well, deeper into the tabletop RPG systems for about nine years, but I first started about 11 years ago with a really gnarly, not so great experience with 3.5, uh, swore mm. him off forever and then got baited back in as a DM two years later when uh, everyone else said, hey, give it a try. It's really cool. But then there were no DMs. So I was like, uh, I guess I'm going to start learning how to run it. And um, you fell for the oldest chick in the book. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, it was switch. like all the different things of like, hey, let's play Dragon Age. Hey, let's play Pathfinder. Right. Like every RPG under the sun was named and then i came across a matt colville video saying you don't need to know D to start playing it to run it just have fun and i was like i can do that um and so uh that's where kind of the snowball started rolling um well, my main love been uh fifth edition um if kind of it's like balance between like the open system of like rules but like a lot of room for creativity and homebrew um I and kind of moved to some older editions where it's like kind of the I'm looking for an RPG group to play in and it was uh take what was available type of situation mixed with wanting to try new things. That's fair. Um yeah. So and even within fifth edition, you guys would know there's so many different play styles, right? There's like Adventures League, which is very episodic and crunchy, and you're gonna get a quest, you're gonna meet these new people. You're going to fight something, and you're going to get experience points. And that's just what it is, right? Not that it's not mm -hmm. fun, but it's very different. You you have an expectation, and it's going to yeah. be bad every time you show up. Yeah, yep. yeah exactly. Um, then, uh, so some 3.5, some Starfinder, a little bit of Pathfinder. Um, and then I switched over to my my current love, which is Masks, which is powered by uh, made by Powered with the Apocalypse. Um, through sheer, like, kind of accident and circumstance of it being mentioned to me being like, I don't, I don't read comic books that much. Like, I don't know. I kind of put it off for a few years and eventually was like, I'll give it a try. And was like, oh my God, this is amazing. It's all narrative. This is what I love about RPGs. So, um, I love playing fifth edition, but I love, love running masks just because there's so much flexibility. Mm hmm the mass system it's the powered by the apocalypse superhero uh yes. superhero yeah, they have game. a few and this one's specifically comic books superhero um and the premise is that you're all teenagers with superpowers learning how to use them 
a big aspect of like the character archetype and playbook is you're starting from a very new place like level one and then moving on and like it's that part of D campaigns like where you're finding yourself but it generally ends by the time you're established it doesn't move into that later um fully established level 10 through 20 it's more of like you save the city and then you kind of have that happy ending nice yeah, that's that's not so bad. You kind of uh, get that neighborhood hero feel. So exactly. you are the defender. You're the Spider-Man, the Daredevil, um, Luke Cage, things like that. Mm. So I'm a big big comic book nerd. I've gotten that's into them more as I started DMing. I went the opposite direction. I was like, oh, I guess I'm gonna get back into comics. <laughs> that's that's fair. I was just uh, I was actually just told earlier today that uh, my oldest son, who is uh, 15, I think. Yeah, he's got to be 15. He'll be 16 at the end of this year, I believe. Uh, anyway, I was a bunch of DC comics uh, just chilling at his dad's place that he's going to give to me. I'm like, oh, you know what? That's great. I haven't collected comic books for years since I lost my collection. So I'm excited. So. I just got gifted um, uh, three volumes of Gotham Academy. Nice. Neighbor. They were like, I was like, I was like, I'm not going to take it. I'm an adult. There are probably kids that want it, right? Like on the neighborhood website and no one had dibs on it. They're like, well, I'm going to throw them out. And I was like, all right, I gave, I gave the neighborhood kids the first chance to take them, but yep. I'm not going to say no to free comic books. Fair. I've, I've been growing my collection by buying the like anthology comic books where they'll, oh, nice. they'll have mm. like five in one and yep. then comes out a little bit slower but then you get like there's all the alternate covers that they slip inside and it's cool extra details and i i love i love all that stuff it also then fits on a bookshelf i feel like comics i don't know how to store comics on a bookshelf it's true uh you really don't unless you buy a lot and just pack them in like magazines (laughs) so or you can get smaller collection boxes they're about 12 inches deep and then you set them in all forward facing you can get like two or three boxes on a standard shelf so not too bad. bad. Anyhow, (laughs) we can go down (laughs) comic books for a while. Um, Ellen, you said that your preferred systems are narrative. And like you said, you mentioned masks by power by the apocalypse. Have you spread out from the power by the apocalypse systems or uh, kind of found your baby and that's where you're, you're hanging out right now. It's where I'm hanging out right now because I'm still new to it and I still like I'm feel I'm still learning a lot. So I don't want to move on to something else yet. I'm totally gonna look into I wanna play more Powered by the Apocalypse. I've also heard like I think it's called Burning Wheel, which is like a fifth edition, but more narrative and kind of spooky. Sounds really fun. Um, but I'm still like really learning the Powered by the Apocalypse like system. Because in essence it's super simple of roll 2d6 there's a threshold here's your result right it's right. very very simple it's not a d20 system it's um so below clear seven to ten partial success and plus full success that's it which is really cool in some ways but i'm also learning that there are things i um or that are like not that i don't like but that are limiting right mm-hmm. um so I've been playing around with like now homebrewing the <laughs> very narrative system of masks, right? And I'm working with my players who like play a lot of video games and comic books. Like that's kind of where I'm at right now because I'm still playing around in that particular sandbox. Sure, sure. And I think that really leads into 
the idea that you wanted to bring to the table to talk about today, and that was kind of building a campaign or plot hooks, points, etc., off of your characters. Yes. So, um, Eli and I have talked about this quite a bit because I've had experience uh, doing strictly that, um, particularly for my world of NMR and first edition Pathfinder. Uh, but let's hear about your uh, your go at this. I mean, how do you feel? Do you like it? Is it something that you're having trouble with? Is it something that you found pitfalls you're trying to work through? Um, I think it's it's actually what I'm starting to realize through playing in other people's games too. Um, is mainly what I do. I generally maybe make like thirty percent of a campaign or world, and then the rest of it is based off of what people want their character to have or bring to the table and then like it's like another 10 percent per player right of like you make 10 percent of the campaign and then you know i add in more stuff to connect it but um it's it's what i'm gravitating to but i also have noticed that harder because it's more dependent on um player input and consistency and like engagement um because you're giving them like one of the torches told right and if they go ah you know and like they like interest wanes or if they want to bring in a new character right it's a little it can be a little bit more of like a narrative scramble sometimes but i still find it like rewarding um yeah that's it's kind of why i wanted to bring it because i think it is really cool because it, it's what separates like a homebrew campaign or a personalized campaign from one that is like a pre-written mm-hmm. one right where like kind of almost opposite ends of the spectrum and like how do you guys deal with finding balance in that because you know wanting narrative to still one person's story it's cool to have a game or two that maybe focuses on them as the main character but that's also a pitfall of dming right if where you can have one character become the main character whether it's for a sustained arc or you know even for a whole campaign i haven't experienced that but you know it, it's possible um so yeah, I, I was, I, I personally try to limit parties being split a lot as part of that, because even if a plot point like focuses on a person, like I'll, I'll admit that's one of the, I guess, only real, real railroady things I do as a DM <laughs> and why I like masks, because comic books have a lot of coincidence. When the parties all split up, you can be like, and the train breaks down, right? Or the bus breaks down right next to the coffee shop where you work at, right? Right. It's needed, right? Not too much. But, um, yeah, so I was curious kind of, like, how you guys worked on that, like, the balance between, like, more overarching narrative and more, like, a specialized one towards players. Yeah, you know, you got a experience in this too, don't you? Yeah, I, I like... I like quite a number of games that sort of build mechanics like this into the game. Like in Star Wars Edge of the Empire, they've got Obligation. Um, did you say you played Edge of the Empire? I haven't. Yeah, either of you? No? Uh, so essentially, like when you build your character like as a as a smuggler or whatever you want to be, you, you end up having some amount of obligation. You have like a debt or there's a bounty on your head, you just you just come in with something on your tail, and <laughs> either at the beginning of the session or at the end of the session, you, you roll a, a D100. Basically, if you roll under everyone's combined obligation totals, someone's obligation is triggered. 
So like if you're being hunted from your debt, then in the session that follows this role, something from your backstory is going to come up to collect on your debt. Um, and so it's a great way of like, even when you're playing the adventure modules, you, you run with this mechanic. So every time you play, you might have completely different, a completely different adventure just because of when these obligation roles show up and it allows the GM to spice up, uh, spice up the games. A more meaningful yeah. way to have random encounters. Like it's still out of the blue, but it's like directly connected to like a player. Yeah, it's a, it's a systematic way to include people's backstory in the game. Yeah. Cool. Yep. Whereas uh, <clears throat> I do two specific things with my parties, my groups uh, for my campaigns. The first one is I use I stole from the fate system. Everybody has to have at least one connection to another party member. So. They have to have, but I definitely do that. (laughs) They they have to have at least one connection. (laughs) Yep. And then just recently, I started using the knife block system, which uh, gained a lot of popularity on Reddit. And I heard from one of our previous hosts, Craig, before he got too busy and had to step out. Um, The knife block system has all your players develop a few different scenarios or situations named. NPCs that are related to them, etc., that come from their backstory. Something I can use to stab them in the back with later. So they give me that information and then I fully develop it, work it into the world. Now, what I found through experience, and Eli figured it out way before we even got to that point, is when you develop something specifically to character background stories, it sucks if they miss a campaign or miss a session or have to bow out because now you are without them and they were the leading character of this chapter. So in my campaigns, both my parties, they each have chapters where they're the main character. So they all have a reason to stay together, but each of them have a char- a character arc that follows like a chapter. They know when theirs is coming up because I lay the seeds down for it, and then we make it through one person's and right into the next. So, cool. Yeah, both of my entire campaigns have been completely developed based off of characters' backstories to start with, and their screw-ups and interactions since. It's uh, it's been a wild ride for some of them. It sounds like does, a lot. Does masks have any sort of mechanics that help encourage, like like that help you as a as a game master, like prepare uh, goals or uh, or storylines for your party? Yeah, actually, powered by the apocalypse. Um, well, I have I have some friends who introduced me to the system. Um, who are like know everything about everything about everything about comic books and what generations and when you know, a world was reset and all this stuff and so the um part of what they've talked about is like some of the overlap with comics and some of the features that are really memorable and some are maybe a little bit outside of my wheelhouse so i might not be doing them justice but by far one of my favorites is um every they're called playbooks so like a class in D, you have a playbook so it's like um transformed it's kind of like beast boy right that kind of thing um then they have every playbook has same features right they have um like their powers and then moves and then there are um, questions for every character that are uh, like there's a few backstory questions like prompts and there's when our team first came together and at session zero you all answer them as a group like um 
our, when our team first met, uh, there was a terrible villain. Who were they? And that person makes up the villain that the party first countered. You go through, and, oh, we made um, we made an enemy of a powerful person in the city. You know, like, and you go through, and it adds kind of like flavor to the world and how the first group first met. And they don't have to be best friends, super cohesive since then. But it's a little bit more of a proactive session zero than like theoretical which is what i'm more used to in other systems so it's kind of cool and then like how you said for star wars they have like um obligations you said yeah um they have some of those for some playbooks um in masks or um like if you're the reformed villain uh an old villain contact might call on you to do something for them and so you roll at the end of sessions for those so you actually have something similar that's oh. awesome and a, a proactive session zero those things are awesome yeah. The game should already be starting at session zero. Exactly. Oh, yeah. You, like, you jump in and you're like, here's your character. Let's go. And then it's not the traditional Powered by the Apocalypse. It's like where you answer the questions. The way um, the first time I played it is the DM just said, okay, what's happening? Right? And you just had to act it out. You didn't even get to answer questions. You had to decide in the moment as your character. And that was super intense and absolutely chaotic. It was very fun. That sounds interesting. It's not something I've uh, much experience in. To be honest, I'm, I guess, more traditional. Of course, my bread and butter comes from a D20 style system. <laughs> so, I think they, most uh, people do. Yeah, they don't like to deviate too much, which is, it's really funny because as much, as many of the systems as I've played, um, I, I really come down to finding that my favorite games are either rather crunchy or have lots of uh, mechanics that I can just sort of piece together like a puzzle. So, I like the narrative style DM, but playing i like to just roll dice hey you can still roll dice playing narrative games is it a fistful of dice though because that's where i start to really just have a good time it's fair so i mean i do also love like the first time ever for me being to play like a high level sorcerer and just being to like, do like i get to do a ninth level scorching ray and just throw all the dice all over it's, it's very right fun. Like, right. so that is one of the limitations, I guess, that I had mentioned, right? It's not like that it's reasons not like the system. There is something really satisfying about throwing dice or doing something like super dramatic. Um, I think it is offset a little bit by something called a moment of truth. Like how in comic books, you have that dramatic, like, and I defeat the, you know, hero in this cinematic scene. You can actually do that. Like, I know some of their game systems have, like, points and things like that where you can spend them to, like, change the narrative slightly it's like a dramatic version of that but still there aren't rolling dice for damage which i do miss sometimes <laughs> <laughs> um yeah I, like you said i think it comes down to it's one of everybody's first loves is when they hit a point where they're rolling enough dice to feel weighty in the hand and effective <laughs> on the battlefield i don't know there's a lot of people out there that hate the amount of math that comes with a lot of dice that's why a lot of those big like large dice pool systems use like only sixes or successes type mechanics to mm -hmm. adding. Yeah. And truthfully, I've, I'm not sure Lauren, if you had heard, but I'm developing my own system Did um, it? where I was looking at a modified dice pool style system. And I came to the conclusion that lots of math truly is bad, especially with the uh, mechanic I wanted to use with contested roles. So I just had to go with, the amount of successes versus successes. Um, otherwise, sitting there adding everything together, no, 
people are not going to play that. So, Eli, you're right. You do get to a point where too much is too much. So, then that is, everybody has their own own limit. I'm the person but. that has my box of dice, and if I get to roll 18 d6s, I'm rolling them all at once. And everyone will just have to <laughs> yep. wait because I'm using my ninth level spell slot. Um. <laughs> I, that's fair. I switched to a dice roller at that point. I'm like, if I got to roll more than like three no, or four. The best part of the high level stuff is getting to just like half of them drop on the floor and it's a mess. But you do it, you do it like once every 20 sessions. I mean, it's, it's not super common. I guess that depends on a <laughs> play style and DM style. Yeah, true. And so. how often you're just throwing that spell. Yes. Yes. Yeah. For nine. Yeah. You just drop a fireball a lot, every session. Yeah. I I got players that do that, by the way. Fireball every session. That's it's fireball. I can fireball a problem as well as Tony Stark can throw money at the problem to solve it. Your oh, players mean scary. gods. Of course, they can throw fireballs. I mean, Not yet they can't. I will say, I guess I haven't had it as much of a problem DMing because I freely admit one of my biggest problems when I've DM'd like 5th edition and stuff like that is DMing spellcasters. Holy baloney. I get messed up with those spell slots. Like I get, like I have, I mean, over time I've gotten better at it, right? Like, but I'll have a whiteboard, right? With like legendary actions for the dragon and then like tick them off with my little <laughs> expo marker because legendary actions no. and spellcasters a little hard. Oh, that's, that's the way to do it though. I mean, if you need to remember all your tactics, all your abilities, all your spells, all your skills, etc. It doesn't matter if you're playing a melee character or a, a spellcaster. I do this. I do the same thing. Everything that I can do is laid out and I can just tick it off when I use it or need to know it's there. It beats having to read through books. It's given me everything I need to know right there and it speeds up the game. So you're not doing it because you're forgetting. You're doing it to help speed up the game. I I don't mind it because as a GM, I feel like it just allows me to play a spellcaster every once in a while. You know, I, I don't have the, I don't have even the, the danger of playing a low level spellcaster. You know, I can just I can skip straight to the powerful ones to hey, fight the players. Hey, there you go. <laughs> I, I was oh. so I was so excited. Um I don't generally like like it depends. It can be fine, but like when a player turns against the party and their PC becomes evil, it has to be handled well, right? It can cause some bad feelings depending on how it works out, right? I have to admit a little part of my heart in like one of the first campaigns I ran someone was playing like a wizard and I like to run higher levels. So I'm like, they're like level 14 at the time. Wizard became evil. And my secret, um, secret, uh, big villain of the campaign was Vecna. And I had like had him in the back, you know, and they like started piecing it together. And then someone, the PC became evil and made a paladin. and was like, I get to play an evil wizard. There's just a little part of me that was like, ha <laughs> like I get to play too. <laughs> so yeah, the high level spellcaster stuff is, is very fun. Unfortunately, the campaign, end up uh we had to move and stuff before we could finish but it was very fun while it lasted but yes the high level high level wizard evil shenanigans very fun my my favorite part is rolling up like a random selection of spells and then trying (laughs) to see what kind of spellcaster would have this eclectic bunch of spells oh i love that idea i'm gonna have to do that i uh in my campaign because first edition pathfinder has a plethora of third-party material for it at this point. Uh, as a DM, I will pick certain spell casting methods. So if everybody is pretty familiar with like Venison, 
spell casting, which is their traditional casting. But I'll pull players who use, not pull, uh, pull NPCs that use spheres of power or power words, true name magic, strange magic, weird magic, all these other third party types of magic that my players don't have access to. So it allows me to learn and develop everything else um, to become a stronger player when I get a chance or just continue seeing what they're not familiar with and throws them off guard. It's it's fun and interesting, but it does create a more hectic playing field. Okay, I have a question though, a follow-up for that. Yeah. You say you pick third party um, types of magic and stuff. After that's introduced, like a villain uses some true name magic or something that's not, you know, all by the book. Mm-hmm. Um, do you allow them to learn? Like if it was a no. wizard, would you? Okay. No. And that was something that before we even started the entire campaign, I put it to the entire party and they voted that they were fine using nothing but core um, right. Paizo first party material. And I could go with anything that is first party Paizo or expand however far I wanted to. So... Yeah, I, uh, that was one thing I did clarify and specifically ask about with my party, just make sure they were okay with that. Yeah, that's smart to have that talk in advance, because I've also, I also know, like, from both being a player in that game and also, like, I haven't done it, but toying around with implementing it, um, like, revealing third party and homebrew stuff through enemies and, like, them learning it that way, but it not being, like, a native thing they, like, learned in the beginning, so I was curious. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's different. And the way I set up my homebrew world of Animar, I I was able to justify um, not letting them learn outside of their traditional magic. Um, and it, at this point, they're all cool with it. So it doesn't come up super frequently it unless it's, yeah, unless it's <laughs> narratively acceptable. So it works. And uh, as Eli said, my players meet gods. So <laughs> it's justifiable that they have different magic. But, all right. And looking back, um, you also wanted to talk a little bit about the idea of Battle Mats Miniatures uh, versus Theater of the Mind. Right? Like, the spectrum of it, I guess, because, you know, there's, like, the extreme of, like, full Dwarven Forge set up to just all, you know, pure Theater of the Mind. I've done both. Really? Yep. Um... I got a love for the full battle set, full miniatures. Uh, visually, it's striking and it's appealing. It's crazy how how cool it looks when you get to the table. But uh, Eli, you do like forty k Warhammer stuff, do, right? I mainly do virtual tabletop stuff, but yep. I do do like convention games, and then we'll also play in person. Um, got my my virtual tabletop group even meets once. Uh, once a year for a weekend and we game in person. Which is well, that sounds so fun. Um, I do have to say like all the best memories that I have of uh, like the most vivid ones have all been at the table. Uh, are normally around. Well, it doesn't even have to matter about the battle map or not there. Um, but uh, I like a mix of it. I haven't, I don't think I've used a lot of maps for, a lot of like purely social encounters though. I mainly just use that. That's where a lot of the theater of mine comes in. Okay. Same. I'd say that most of my social encounters are theater of the mind, but there've been a few times where I've built an entire city on my table. I've got a, I've got a five by 10 conference table and I've filled it with 
buildings and roads and miniatures, et cetera, so they could walk around and they could interact. Um, Sounds so cool. <laughs> it, it, it was. Rob, it was a lot of work. What? Rob does a cool thing, too, where since he's got, like, NPC cards, yeah. he can show them off when he's got an NPC talking. And I think that, especially for a theater of mind social encounter, I think that's wonderful. Yep. So it's not I, a map, I, but it's still a visual aid, right? It's, yeah. So yeah. It's, it's, yep. it's a. It, there, it's not pure theater of the mind, air quotes. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, but I'd have to agree. I think most of the time, my favorite memories come from absolute theater of the mind, and I've got a player that actually prefers theater of the mind, um, which, which is fun. I like. I, said, I like the maps, not just the maps, but the whole setup for the visual aspect. But running a battle and encounter turning it more into a war game or a miniature style uh, war game like Warhammer 40k is um, it feels different and you get hooked on the mechanics at that point when you're going theater of the mind you don't have to be so stingy on the mechanics and the rule sets so, I feel like it can really depend on what your party is trying to get out of an encounter like I think it can be absolutely wonderful to have a map for the, the final boss battle that you know the culmination of your session and you know maybe you have a real like you can put extra effort into making a nice map for it or you know setting up and preparing in that manner but then if you're doing a chase scene do it theater of mind i think it can work easier or at least with like minor props i got a great story chase scenes are always tricky <laughs> Yeah, chase teams are always they're, tricky. They're always tricky. <laughs> this may help you with a chase scene. Um, it came from Potato, uh, best friend who passed away, uh, oh man, just over a year ago now, um, who's helped me start the podcast. He did a chase scene, and we were running first edition Pathfinder, but we utilized, it was all theater of the mind, and he chose specific skills to do certain things to maintain the chase. So it wasn't always make a dexterity save or a athletics check to jump over and weave through the forest. Sometimes it was make a constitution to make sure you're still able to keep up with the breathing as this chase is running on forever. And now that he's running through a thick bog, you have to make a swim check to keep going. And he did it in an initiative order. So it was everybody would go around the table for the initiative to make the specific checks necessary for that individual round. And then we would repeat. Um, it was more in depth than just two or three chase rolls. I mean, I'm not a fan of playing chase scenes in initiative order. I, I just really? think that's that, the way I've played it too. No, I'm, I'm just, I'm just not a fan. Cause I feel like it is uh, like, there are a lot of different actions you can take. And I think that they all have like such varying different times. I think it's better to flow with how the actual chase is occurring. I think it just yeah. helps the scene move along faster and to a more satisfying conclusion than stopping to, you know, require a role for every character that's starting to fall behind or getting diverted or doing something completely different. Those are that's, two completely different goals, right? Like you're saying, get it over, like, like go through it quickly. Like a, it's a narrative obstacle, get to something else. But the only initiative for a chase scene is like, 
almost like in a battle, right? It's different ways of treating it as an encounter. One, it's like a preliminary encounter to a boss or to getting an item, and one, it is it is the encounter. Right, and I, I agree with that, and I understand where you're coming from, Eli. It's not. It's not my preferred style. I like to keep things a little bit ordered. And I can also mentally compartmentalize. So if somebody is still like technically three rounds behind, but they are following an initiative order, I can separate that. So I know it's not happening congruently with whatever is going on at a separate time. So I don't I don't know if everybody's like that, but I know where it can also divide. And I wanted to say conquer because that comes next, but... I know where I can divide some people's abilities. Uh, I got, what is it, different flavors, different strokes for different folks? I think it also depends, like, on the party or, you know, like, what the chase is. Because, um, like, sometimes there's the, like, you know, you're, it depends on what function it has, right? Because if, if, like, a villain is trying to escape and they're bench and dooring away right that's very different than a minion running down an alley right like they like they're, they're like the way that would break up could could potentially be very different like um, yeah for for me i don't want a chase scene to feel like a combat because if i want it to feel like a combat i'll just have a combat and we won't have to deal with jumping through awkward hoops imposing an initiative system on a chase scene I think it should be its own thing. That's fair. That's fair. Um, I think everybody sets up sets up how they feel most comfortable to run. So I do try new things. I've tried chase scenes both in initiative order, and I tried a chase scene where it was mostly narrative. So it's chase scenes are excitingly different. I'll give you that. Have you? Uh, I forgot where it was. I want to say it was along the Mad Max line. Uh, when Fury Road came out, Mad Max and Fury Mad Max Fury Road is primarily known for being a 100% chase movie. I believe that they have a few different versions of the um, chase style based on that feeling from the film, uh, written up in TTRPGs. Have you seen anything like that? No, no, no. That's all right. It's I think every. And I think evil, I think evil genius games will be having a a Mad Max supplement for their everyday heroes on top of that, which I'm kind of excited about as well. So, um, I think the only, I, I don't know if this was part of the module or if it was just how it was made up at the time, but um, I did play a little bit of sent into Avernus and there was like a little bit to do with like the infernal machines right and like <laughs> how to deal with the encounters and like also it's something that recently came recently as in like the past two years um came out with um indie with like testing the rules for like ship combat like with salt marsh and stuff like that so it's mm -hmm. like I think there's overlap with combats of like when there's moving vehicles or, you know, whether it be boats, carts, um, it, it has a little bit of overlap, too, with Chase of, like, um, does something happen on initiative count 20, right? Like, there's a little bit of overlap, so that, like, that's the closest I could think with, like, Max and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, and it's funny, when you say, uh, 
carts. My first thought was just to go with the uh, the pulled rickshaw. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, that would be funny. Constitution <laughs> save to keep keep running with the rickshaw. <laughs> well, oh, Apocalypse World was. I mean, that's Mad Maxian. If we're talking Mad Max games, and that's the uh, yeah. that's the apocalypse that powers the apocalypse, powered yes. by the apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. And uh, again, I w- I want to say that there was a specific vibe after Mad Max Fury Road came out that people were trying to search for. I just don't remember hearing about the Apocalypse World game around the same time. I don't think there is any game that is like Mad Max. You know, there's like Judge Dredd and Marvel, all these other games that fit like exactly the genre. I don't think there's a Mad Max game. Uh... Nah, we got some. Yeah. What do we got? Hold on, I just clicked on the wrong button real quick. Uh, (laughs) Apocalypse World comes up, Atomic Highway. I remember playing Atomic Highway. That was great. It's Atomic Highway, you're actually playing as cars. It's it's way more maximum overdrive (laughs) than anything else. But it's it's pretty badass. Uh, Savage Worlds has a slight different narrative. Uh, Atomic Highway and its supplement, um, Irradiated Freaks. Uh, Punkopolypse, Godless, uh, Hell on Classic Earth, America. I want to hear more about this game where you play as a car. Atomic Highway. We all have to save that one for a different episode, considering how far we are into this one now. <laughs> but it's, uh, if I remember correctly, it was Atomic Highway, and it was it was really fun. So that was one of one-off games, which has... Lauren, I've got a question for you. Yes. Okay. Eli does this and i think i'm going to start but if you are missing a player or two and don't have enough to go on for a essentially a full session do you call the session or do you try to at least have the people who can get together get together and either try a different game or learn something new or just hang out either way um yeah i'm pretty pretty strong believer in keeping the group together to do like something all i'm happy to run a if it's masks easy like random comic book episode you know like that's super easy to throw in there but even if we can't like other games where i'm not even the dm i'll offer to run one shots um when we can't play even if i'm not dming because like kind of like the um continuity of the group and the game and having that schedule reinforced especially if you can't play a game for a few weeks in a row i think is like really important Mm -hmm. um it just like it's fun also just to learn you know try new things with the same group of people and like okay we know that doesn't work right like sometimes it's honey heist sometimes it's a more crunchy game um yeah i i really really like to like try to play something although i think like sometimes it's like just fate right it doesn't work out it's okay but like if there's the option I prefer to like have something going on yeah i like that i think i'm going to start shooting for the same yeah i'm gonna be so. struggling because i'm heading off to portugal for a couple weeks Ooh. where i'm probably not going to be playing with my group or even meeting with them um so i'm gonna actually coordinate uh they've been gone from their kind of like home base for a number a number of in-game months so i'm gonna have them release rumors in our in our discord chat and then have their their proteges that stayed behind 
be able to ask about, discover, and kind of investigate a little bit of the of the rumors, so that hopefully gets a little engagement on the chat for uh, the next couple of weeks, and then when their players return, they already have some hooks that have been sinking into their. Yeah. Are you letting? Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to ask if you're letting your players develop those rumors. Well, uh, I am in, in a, uh, maybe slightly indirect manner because I'm I'm asking them what they're interested in asking it. Like I'm I'm basically asking ninety percent of them, ninety percent of the work from them because I'm like, who are you asking or what are you asking about? And I'll I'll see what directions they're going in, and then I'll be able to provide different rumors and you know. Like ChatGPT, I will learn from my players' responses <laughs> and develop different queries towards their chosen answers. Why, why not just ask them what rumors they've already heard? Like, hey, what rumors have you heard? I've definitely done that. Just come up with them for yeah. me. What, what rumor happens about your character? Um, one other thing, too, is if, like, either it's me, like, just brain day, can't DM, or, you know, you know whatever isn't working out for a one shot um another thing that's really fun is asking character questions and just just like um either as a dm or just a fellow player it can be really fun to just go through like random character questions and be like hey what's changed since level one or if you're developing a new character just like that that can also be a fun way to kind of like there if there has to be a two or three week break just every once in a while throwing out some questions getting a conversation going like you said like we're just keeping that engagement yeah, so I I have asked uh, the main the the main characters what are your goals, and so I've got all these goals from the main party, and so the idea with all these rumors is I'm going to have I've got all their main goals, and I've got ideas prepped for what they could do to accomplish those goals, and so these rumors are going to be ways of seeding. So these rumors aren't really even intended for the the protege characters that are asking or discovering them, because they're actually the hooks for the main party, we're mm -hmm. going to hear them and go, wait, I wonder if that's, insert their relevant goal. Sure. Um, you have two full parties you DM for in the same narrative? So, they have main characters and then protégés. So, oh. what, like, it allows them, so like, when, when their main character dies, they have to <laughs> choose from one of their protégés to take their place. Okay. Um, and so their protégés, they can give them yeah. Very proactive. <laughs> and it, it also allows them to like, like, cause they have a pool of protégés. So they allow, they can take them on adventures or they can also give them the opportunity to roll multiple different sets of random stats. And since this game encourages like random generating your character, the more chances you have to random generate a character, you know, you have a, a variety. Cause sometimes you do generate a character who's not great. You know, you're a barbarian with one leg and one bad eye and uh, gout. That honestly sounds like something I would like to play. Like for a one shot, oh man, that would be so fun. Exactly. So they're a great protege. You bring them in and they'll, they save you one time fighting an ogre and you're like, time for you to retire. <laughs> <laughs> Lost the other leg. They're, they're off duty. <laughs> Oh, so great. yeah, it's it is almost sometimes like we have two different parties in the same okay. group, uh, but uh, it works really well. So like when the party's gone, so like if I, I our quorum is four players, so if we only have two or three, what I'll often do is I'll run an adventure for their proteges. Where oh, even if you have three, you still you, if, still, you don't. 
Yeah. So like just how you might run like a one shot of masks, I'll just run a completely irrelevant side quest for the characters on doing whatever. And it allows us to like build out the world in small areas or oh, yeah. even give their protégés extra experience just so if their main character dies. Mm-hmm. So. I like that. I've uh I've taken on the same similar idea for protégés for both of my campaigns. Only I've done them a little bit it, differently. Yeah, it doesn't have as quite of an impact if you die and you just come back with a character the same level. No, they're not. Their protégés start off at level one. But I develop their level one protégé, and I give their protégés their initial goal. So the character is started off by my idea. My players get to flesh them out as they level up. But... <laughs> They, they are stuck in the constraints in which I have started. So, Well, my thought was, hey, if you're going to have a protege who's going to follow you, you know, that's fine. But it's going to be, this is the guy that's going to follow you. Like, what, he sees something in you, and you got to teach this guy. So, otherwise, I I'd have... I see I would have players you... that, yeah... I'm sorry, finish, your, finish what you were saying. I would have players that just develop the same character every time. They would have six different Bobs, and they would all be the same guy. Or just literally the same exact person. Yes. Yeah. I have I have run and played with people who have to play the, like, literally yep. same stats, same everything. Yep. It's strange. I, as a game master, only allow it if their next character has a different number next to their name. <laughs> so I'll only, like, so, you know, it's, it's okay. If, yeah, exactly. It, as long as there is a history of all the different Bobs, um, go for it. Um, but but yep. I think that is also the, the difference between a system with a random generation character system and just a, a point by or really choose whatever. True. Because, I mean, you can kind of optimize when you're creating a random generated character, but it's within, like, you're encouraged to keep whatever you roll for your stats and and so on and so forth. And your protégés are all going to be different every single time you make a character. That's fair. That's fair. When it comes to randomly generated characters, my heart still lies with TSR's Marvel Classics. Uh, Marvel Superheroes, 100% random from conception to completion. So it's a favorite one out there. But we're hitting time, guys. Any any last words that we want to leave our listeners off with? For me to Peanut say butter, thank jelly you for top. including me, guys. It was really oh, fun absolutely. to be here and chat with you both. I really enjoyed having you around again. It was uh, wonderful. Super duper appreciative. Eli? Wash your feet. Fair enough. Guys, we'll see you next week. Uh, Check us out online or on Facebook at EpicTableGames.com. Okay, new intro. We've changed the name, and we're still using the word Paladin. Paladin. I mean, it hasn't been used in the English language in about 200 years, but okay.